And hello again, this is Giovanni McIver with the By Jove Show for July 15th, 2023. So today's show we're going to go right into um, because I'm going to go over some topics that I have recently spoken about and um, just wanted to update you on a couple of things related to that and that will be mostly the content of our show. So you will have to have... Um, seen my other shows on these topics to uh, understand where I'm coming from to some degree. But uh, then again, um, you probably just jump right in too. So there are three separate articles coming out of the AP News site today. Well, not necessarily today. Um, it just culminated for me because um, over the last couple of days, these three articles have come out and they're very relevant to what I've been talking about. So the first article um, involves the Larry Nassa, Nasser case. And so as we know, um, you know, he was attacked in prison by another inmate. And uh, I had a show about that and um, why that's problematic and all the kind of rationalizations that were used by the um, federal prison system to more or less excuse uh, letting something like that happen. Of course, when someone's incarcerated, the number one rule of thumb should be that when they're incarcerated, um, well, being incarcerated is, is, is hard enough, I guess, but uh, safety, you would think, would be a priority of the inmates. Um, they're not going to be incarcerated to be doubled down on so they can be punished more you know, that's a, that's a form of double jeopardy. It's really not allowed in our system in general. But um, that's typically what does happen, right? Because when they go to jail, they get piled on by the authorities, by other inmates, um, in various circumstances. So, you know, of course, everybody hates Larry Nasser, right? Guy's a complete horrible person. Um, Etc. Etc. What he did, at least. So, but we all know that people are not the sum total of their worst acts. Now he has shown himself to be a habitual violator, and um, that makes people even less likely to uh, empathize with him in any way. But you have to remember that this this man was once a baby, um, came in the world fairly innocently, and you know. Um, time passed and things got real crazy and he ended up being kind of the horrible person he is. Um, but that doesn't excuse um, the way that he's been treated um, by so-called responsible parties. Um, and that includes uh, some of the um, litigation that went on, some of the comments by the judge that were made, particularly at the, at the uh, sentencing, sentencing stage, sorry, <laughs> tripping up on certain words. And, um, well, let's get right into the article, because the article came out a few days after the first time I addressed this. And the headline is, Suspect in Larry Nasser stabbing said ex-doctor made lewd remark watching Wimbledon, AP source, AP source says. Okay, so... What does that mean? A prisoner suspected of stabbing Larry Nasser at a federal penitentiary in Florida said the disgraced former sports doctor provoked the attack by making a lewd comment while they were watching a Wimbledon tennis match on TV, a, per a person familiar with the matter told the Associated Press. Okay. Um, do we know that's a fact? Uh, apparently they, they're not watching him. There's no video of this attack. So how can we really you know, take that as a fact. I mean, we can take that as someone's testimony, right? And, um, of course, you know, the person who, it's coming from the person who attacked him. So he has a vested interest in coming up with a reason that makes sense, um, but makes sense only in the sense that, you know, the whole point of someone attacking another inmate is to 
is to gain the favor of people by attacking someone who's more heinous than them. But anyway, um, it's interesting when you get into the history of who this person is who attacked Larry Nasser. Okay, so um, the inmate, identified as Shane McMillan, was previously convicted of assaulting a correctional officer at a federal penitentiary in Louisiana in 2006 and attempting to stab another inmate to death at the Federal Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado in 2011, court record shows. So here we are. We have, <clears throat> this gets a lot deeper than the original treatment from a couple of days ago because, you know, um, it's bad enough that he was able to attack another inmate, but I think it shows gross negligence inside the penitentiary because why do you have somebody who is a predator, right, in any proximity to someone who is a, you know, high-value target in a sense? Because right, you know if you, and sure enough, you know, you know if you attack Larry Nasser, you know, people are going to basically say, you know, hey, you know, good job. And, um, you know, at least emotionally they'll feel that way. And you know you're going to make it into the news. And so that the reality is, is fact now. We all know who Shane McMillan is. Right? And part of the idea, whether it's a mass shooting or any other kind of crime, is that you don't focus on the perpetrators. You don't say what their names are. You don't. You know, which I think is a little iffy, because certain facts are just certain facts. But there is some value to not um, uh, declaring the news to to the to the whole world, because of course that's what they're after, right? They're after notoriety. They're after attention. And um, sure enough, they got it. So that's a little tricky because you're you're kind of damned if you do or damned if you don't if you report it, but. I don't know, I think you say this, the basic facts and then you move on. But uh, anyway, uh, here's a guy who has, has a record, a recent record, of not just attacking another inmate, but attacking a correctional officer, which is a whole other step up in the chain, right? Because that would not be seen as something that most, a lot of people would, uh, let's say, sympathize with, okay? So... And, and the Supermax prison in Colorado is, is really the uh, state-of-the-art in terms of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> degrading prisoners because you're, you're basically 24-7 watched every, you know, every moment of the day and you can go refer to Foucault's famous uh, treatise on this, the idea of how prisons work and that kind of thing. It's a little nice side reading you could do, but... Um, yeah, that's what the Supermax prison is, you know, the Panopticon idea. Um, and how that in and of itself is a, in Foucault's uh, view, is a, is a violation of human rights. So anyway, um, that was just an aside. McMillan attacked Nasser in his cell Sunday with a makeshift weapon, stabbing him multi multiple times in the neck, chest, and back before four other inmates rushed in and pulled him off Nasser, according to the person familiar with the matter. Correctional officers assigned to the unit at the United States Penitentiary Coleman responded to Nasser's cell and performed what officials said were life-saving measures. He was taken to a hospital where he remained in stable condition Wednesday with injuries including a collapsed lung. Okay, so a collapsed lung is obviously a major um, assault. Um, you could certainly die from things like that, <clears throat> but luckily they got to him in time. Cell doors on most federal prison units are typically open during the day, letting prisoners move around freely within the facility. Because Nasser was attacked in his cell, the incident was not captured on surveillance cameras, which only point at common areas and corridors. Now, that's an interesting thing. Um, why to do that? I guess they need privacy. I mean, they're using the toilet, they're doing things like that, but um, I'm not so sure about this. Um, McMillan, 49, told prison workers that he attacked Nasser after the sexually abusive ex-U.S. gymnastics team doctor made a comment about wanting to see girls playing in the Wimbledon women's match, the person said. Okay, so, um, you know, if, if an ordinary citizen said something like that, I, I don't know that that would be taken as, as such a, a lewd comment, right? I mean, um, I don't know if there are players in, in that, circuit that are under the age of 18, but certainly in other sports, there are, including gymnastics. Um, 
But uh, that in and of itself is, is, if it were said by anybody but him, of course, would, be, would, would not be necessarily a lewd comment. Um, you could be thinking that, you know, in, particularly in gymnastics, um, when you have player uh, performers who are under the age 18, I mean, gymnastics, uh, gymnasts tend to peak when they're minors. So if you want to see the people who are the best in the world, you're going to be seeing girls competing. But, you know, because it's Larry Nasser, of course, anything he says is illegitimate and it's, it's disgusting and it's, well, okay, fine. I understand that too. But um, that was the basis. And there's a, there's a kind of a legitimacy lended to, his, to this uh, person who attacked him because, um, you know, if you believe that what he said was, was distasteful, then, again, it, it's, it's somehow allowable to you know, beat up on him, or try to murder him, really. Um, the person was not authorized to publicly discuss details of the attack or the ongoing investigation, and did so on, on condition of anonymity, so that's kind of a non-sequitur. They, it looks like they reworked this, uh, this, this article from an earlier one, and, um, but basically they're getting, an insider is kind of talking to the, uh, to the press without permission. Messages seeking comment were left with lawyers who represent McMillan in his past cases. Okay, so Sunday's attack was the second time Nasser has been assaulted in federal custody. Now, an another warning sign, right? If he's already been attacked, one would think that they would be um, on the lookout for that, you know, in wherever, wherever, wherever he happens to be. Um, he is serving decades in prison for sexually abusing athletes, including college and Olympic gymnastics stars, and possessing explicit images of children. The attack underscored persistent problems at the Federal Bureau of Prisons, including violence, short staffing, and an inability to keep even its highest profiles prisoners safe. Okay, so I think that's pretty damning, that sentence. Um, it's, it, I think it's reflected in reality. So um, the Bureau of Prison, Prisons insists that there was adequate staffing at the prison where Nasser was stabbed. Well, apparently there wasn't because he wouldn't have been stabbed if that was the case. Um, and of course, they repeat the 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 uh, AP repeats the contention that one third of uh, correctional officer positions remain unfilled at that prison. So that by, by itself shows certain incompetence and um, negligence, right? And then in a statement Wednesday, the agency said it was imperative that we increase our staffing levels and said it was recruiting officers and using financial incentives to try to retain workers. Officials said they were also still working to tackle the problem of violence in our facilities and have enhanced their security pr procedures, but would not provide details. So the one, in, the one, in the one hand, they're saying, oh, poor us, we don't have enough people to properly uh, do our our task, and then the, uh, on the other hand, they're they're saying that that they do need to, um, you know, they do have to um, increase their, you know, increase their staffing. So it has to be one or the other. Um, the BOP takes seriously our duty to protect the individuals entrusted in, in our custody, as well as maintain the safety of correctional staff. And the community, so they add that little bit to make you feel more sympathetic toward them because, God forbid, these horrible people should get out and attack people, you know, the regular folk. It's okay if you attack people in the prison, but it's not okay if that happens outside the prison. We make every effort to ensure the physical safety of individuals confined to our facilities through a controlled environment that is secure and humane. Doesn't sound like it. As we continue to pivot out of a years-long pandemic, so now they're using the pandemic as an excuse, there are still changes to confront and opportunities to improve our agency, protect the lives of those who work with us, and ensure the well-being of those entrusted to our custody. Well, I'm sure that all these problems were also um, evident before the pandemic, so using the excuse of the pandemic is probably not a valid argument. McMillan is scheduled to be released from prison May 2046, okay, pretty much never, according to the BOP, um, though that could change if he's charged and convicted of attacking NASA. Yeah, I think so. McMillan was originally sentenced to more than 20 years in federal prison after pleading guilty in Wyoming to conspiracy to contribute methamphetamine. He had been expected to be released next year before his convictions for the Louisiana and Colorado prison attacks more than doubled his sentence. 
So he punched a correctional officer in a recreational yard in a United States penitentiary in Louisiana um, while investigating him for a prior, prior inmate assault, according to court records. So this is a guy who has a pretty long rap sheet. The blow knocked the officer to the ground and caused cuts and bruising to his face and nose. McMillan was sentenced to an additional five years. Okay, and then McMillan in 2011, McMillan and another inmate attempted to kill a prisoner at the Federal Bureau of Prisons Administrative Maximum Facility in Florence, Colorado, according to court records. McMillan and the other inmates stabbed the prisoner 66 times in a recreational area of the prison known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies. They were each sentenced to an additional 20 years for the attack. So this guy, I mean, you, you know, how in God's name can you make any argument for putting this man anywhere close to someone who's a high-value target, another inmate? So, I mean, is it, you know, whose fault is it? Is it the fault of that inmate, or is it the fault of the people who are overseeing these inmates? I don't know. I tend to think the, the second. McMillan arrived at the Coleman, Florida Penitentiary last December. According to records obtained by the AP, he spent the previous four years at a federal penitentiary in Tucson, Arizona, Following stints at federal prisons in Allenwood, Pennsylvania, and adjacent to the Supermax lockup in Colorado, the record shows. So he has a pretty long record of being incarcerated. Nassar was transferred to Coleman from the Tucson Penitentiary in August 2018. His lawyer said he'd been assaulted within hours of being placed in, in, in the general population at the Arizona prison. So not only was the uh, perpetrator of the crime, you know, have a long rap sheet, Nassar himself has had a history of being attacked. So really, there's no excuse. But, um, you know, when the prisons put out these these press releases and the AP kind of, you know, you know, projects them out there uh, pretty much verbatim. I mean, there isn't a ton of analysis here being like in the, in the sense that I'm analyzing the story. Right. Um, they're not bringing up what are the problematic parts of this. Right. They're just explaining it and. To some extent, that's what the AP does. But uh, anyway, we still have to give AP a lot of credit for doing their Supreme Court um, <laughs> investigation. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to go to a second article now that uh, has to do with something I, I, I was talking about previously. Um, and I think this is uh, more in the Department of Justice um, arena, right? So... Department of Justice, of course, is in charge of these federal prisons, the Bureau of Prisons. And so this is kind of tangentially related to it. So how the art, the, um, the headline here is how did DOJ, how DOJ made different death penalty decisions in the Pittsburgh synagogue and Texas mall massacres. Okay. So there were two mass shootings in the not too distant, distant future, one in Pittsburgh and one in Texas. And um, the AP does kind of a comparison between the two cases to illustrate uh, how the DOJ handles these things. So um, two separate shootings, 2,000 miles apart. One killed 11 at, at a Pittsburgh synagogue. The other killed 23 at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. Both were motivated by hate. Both involved gunmen who later claimed mental illness. So they're saying basically these are, you know, more or less equivalent um, events in the in the gross uh, facts, right? That's their starting point. But earlier this year, the Justice Department auth authorized the death penalty only for the case in Pittsburgh, where jurors will soon answer the weightiest of questions. Should Robert Bowers be put to death? Well, okay, my point of view is that the death penalty is not a valid um, uh, way of handling things. Um, there are many, many reasons for that. Um, I guess I could get into them, but, um, in, 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 you know, uh, I think, generally speaking, we should not be in the, kill, in the, in the killing business. I, mean, I don't think that sets a very good uh, example. I mean, if the Department of Justice and the justice system can decide to kill people, uh, you, it's a little bit of a slippery slope, I would think, you know? People say, well, if they're killing people, why can't other institutions kill people? And why can't other individuals, if they're justified in it, well, no, we can't do that. I mean, that, 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 that's not a, I don't think that's a, a very, um, 
uh, you know, a, a culture that uh, is going to, um, you know, it's a culture of violence, basically. When you kill somebody, that's a violent act. So if you're putting people in, in prison for murder, and, but you're murdering yourself, I, I don't know. There seems to be a fundamental contradiction and just hiding behind the fact that it's an institution instead of a person. You know, but there are people who do actually do the killing, right? And, and, and there's also this idea that um, somehow, you know, that's not a revengeful act. I mean, but I think the fact is that when you kill the person who committed the crime, um, it doesn't really help anything. Um, in fact, I think it just creates more victims um, in the sense that just like the Larry Nasser, you know, someone who is a murderer was once a baby and obviously things went wrong to get them in a position where they ended up killing somebody, but they have a mother and a father and sisters and brothers and friends and acquaintances. And uh, those people are going to be victimized when that person is put to death. Now you might say, you know, oh, crocodile tears, but th these things are real. I mean, you can't, a mother can't um, stop loving her son. I say son because it's mostly males who are murdering. Um, because he killed somebody, right? I mean, there's a whole history there before he killed he killed somebody. So that doesn't just get wiped out. So you're just compounding people's pain. And I, I guess you could say you're relieving other people's pain, like the victim's family, that somehow they're going to be have closure, what they call closure. But as we all know, in the psychiatric business or the psychology business that, uh, you know, that often does not bring closure. Um, when, you know, um, we like the idea of closure because it makes us feel like at some point we're, we're not going to suffer anymore. But just putting the person to death is not going to stop people from suffering. Um, so I, I guess the, some of the argument is that while they, they can't, you know, continue to make you suffer, if, if they're really problematic types of people who start taunting, you know, and all this other stuff. But you'll see the rest of the article kind of brings that up, you know. So um, Bauer's trial is in the penalty phase after his June conviction for the 2018 anti-Semitic attack. A federal judge last Friday gave Patrick Crucius the maximum available sentence for the 2019 Walmart attack on Hispanics. That's a different person. Life in prison. He, he pleaded guilty after the department took a death sentence off the table. So, you know, there's kind of this plea bargaining stage, right, where, you know, if you agree to take a lesser charge, in other words, if you're, if you're, if you're going to be threatened with the death penalty, and you say, well, um, actually, we, we, won't, we won't prosecute with it. We, we, won't, we won't expect the death penalty as long as you just plead guilty and get a life sentence. So if you like that deal, you can take it. If you don't, well, there are going to be consequences, and you might be eligible for the death penalty. So in that case, you know, the person really doesn't have much of a choice, I guess, if they want to live. Um, and so they take the, they take the plea, right? Um, but I don't know about you, but I feel that that's kind of a manipulative um, thing. I mean, all plea bargains are manip manipulative, but I think a lot of times... Um, they cause other problems as a result, and this is well, this is the case in this case because you have a you have a disparity between what one state does and another state does, all under the same rubric of the federal um, criminal justice system. But uh, when you have such a, a difference in um, outcomes that are based on just the particulars of the case. I mean, you, you should be worried that somehow your system is not really tuned in the right way to, to dole out equal justice, right? And that's the, that's the whole point of the justice system is to, is to be consistent with the way that they um, do things. So contra contrasting decisions in such similar cases illustrates the department's murky, often baffling, and seemingly inconsistent death penalty policies. Department decision-making and the criteria it favors are also shrouded in secrecy. So how do these decisions get made and by whom? Good question, AP. Yes, good question. I like that they come out and have a pretty strong statement there. Murky, often baffling, seemingly inconsistent. I mean, that might even be a little bit of an understatement, but, um, but shrouded in secrecy. So what do they mean by that? Okay. 
The next section is called Biden's Justice Department. President Joe Biden campaigned in part on a promise to abolish the U.S. death penalty. While he has taken no steps to fulfill that, his Justice Department has made some notable changes. So that's interesting. That's, a, that's an interesting thing to point out, right? That, you know, he said one thing and he did pretty much nothing. In 2021, Garland announced a moratorium on federal executions while a review of execution, execution procedures is completed. So there's a whole controversy of is, is the death penalty and lethal injection a, a cruel and unusual punishment? In my, my estimation, it is. For various reasons, I'm not going to get into the to the minutia of that, but I think you can make a good argument. Um, however, it doesn't stop prosecutors from seeking death sentences. So, even though they're not putting people to death, they're still putting them in line to be put in death. So, I think that's a bit of a contradiction, right, from the stated um, goal of at least the the candidate, right. Department also withdrew permission for death sentences in 24 out of 29 cases authorized by prior administration. So they, they vacated, um, well, I mean, they didn't vacate the, the decision, but they, they um, you know, they, they didn't make it possible to go ahead and go for a death penalty. So, and the department hasn't authorized death penalties for any of around 400 new indictments during Biden's presidency that carried capital sentences. So in a way, you know, he's he's honoring his, you know, his pledge to, to some extent, but in a, in a more passive way. But it's still mulling whether to authorize a death sentence for Peyton Gendron, a white supremacist who killed 10 black people at a Buffalo, New York supermarket in 2022. So you have, honestly, a very confused policy, right? And I'm not so sure why it's so confusing, because when you're in power... And you appoint somebody to execute the, the, no pun intended, the policy that you intended. Why is it so um, contradictory? Why is it so? It should be fairly easy. But, um, you know, to answer my own question, I would think that there are political pressures, right? Because Biden has always had the streak in him where he has to show that he's more badass than the Republicans are in terms of crime and all that kind of thing. So he's he's got this... Uh, you know, real chip on his shoulder about it. But so in that way, I don't think he's a very courageous leader. Um, he's just letting things happen um, kind of passively. Critics of the department single out an enigmatic department division, the capital case section, with just nine career attorneys and one administrator. It assists U.S. attorneys' offices with capital cases and plays a vital role advising department review committees which vote on recommending death sentences. Although Attorney General Merrick Gardner Garland has a final say. Okay, so there's this committee, which I did. I had no idea about. I think it's a rather odd thing. I mean, um, isn't it up to the, um, the individual prosecutors what they're going to go for based on the evidence and all that? I mean, in, in some ways that contradicts what I'm saying, but in some ways it's, it's indicative of more problems because if you have this, this um, capital case section uh, staff of attorneys, and, and, and they don't seem to be able to, um, you know, uh, have the policy reflect what, what you want it to be, then I don't know if that's a very good thing to have. Um, they don't seem to be doing their job. So, though many were hired under other administrations, all current staff worked in the section under President Donald Trump, so right there, I have some questions. Why does Biden keep all these people who work for Trump in power, who oversaw a historic six-month spree of 13 federal executions? So when Trump was president, they were, you know, burning the, burning the candle, you know, fantastic. They were, you know, just putting them in the guillotine and getting rid of them in record speed. So, that you know, they have a history of having uh, trigger fingers. So, um, hmm, interesting. Critics argue that carryover contribu contributes to an unwelcome continuity. Yeah, again, another major um, <laughs> understatement. The department has fought as hard under Biden as under Trump to defeat all bids by some 40 inmates on federal death row in Terre Haute, Indiana, to have their death sentences tossed on racial bias and other grounds. Yeah, so here you have the resistance again. It's like, what, what are you doing? Do you, does the right hand and the left hand know what each are doing. I mean, it, there's no coordination here. Um, 
I don't think it's a surprise that in the absence of any declared policy in the White House and having the same staff at the Capitol case section that you do not have whole-scale changes. Yeah, that was from a law professor. Well, hello. Um, Monica Foster, Chief Federal Defender at the Indiana Federal Community Defender's Office, argues the section has a vested interest in pushing for some capital cases to be greenlighted. Without death penalty cases, they have no reason for being, right? It's like with a therapist, right? I mean, the, the whole job of the therapist is to put yourself out of business by helping people feel better and so they can function without support, right? I mean, that is your number one goal is to kind of put yourself out of out of business. Well, you know, it doesn't happen because there's always a whole bunch of people who, you know, in successive generations who need help too. But, um, yeah, it's a good point. Um, there is a vested interest to just keep their jobs, right? Like the, the bureaucratic effect. You know, we have these jobs for the sole purpose of employing people not to do what they're meant to do, right? Without dental death penalty cases, well, I agree with that. So the section, she said, once simply ferried documents to review committees, but now assumes a more active role, conducting research and interviews to prepare for death penalty decisions. So they're, they're advocating in a much more um, active way, turns out. They can end up steering the outcome. Justice Department spokesman Scotty Howell said Foster's claim and other allegations about the section are false, adding that department staff make all decisions based on the facts and the law and hold themselves to the highest standards. So again, if I say it, it's true. Don't, don't contradict me. Don't ask questions. Don't whatever. But the, <clears throat> the thing that they miss is that, um, you know, you can look at it from just a purely statistical sense, right? It's not a matter of one person's opinion against the other. It's a matter of what's happening and why is it problematic. And we have documents to, to, to um, you know, to, for that to be documented with, right? The next section, mental health, other factors in department decisions. An Associated Press review of court filings and Biden-era staff guides offer clues about what influences the Justice Department's decisions. Sorry, that's a very awkward sentence. They suggest the department is most likely to okay death sentences for racist or terrorist attacks and when victims' families support it. Okay, so here's another interesting thing. You know, if the crime is heinous enough, you're likely to get it. Well, I don't know. That's a more of an emotional argument. Why would, you know, when people kill other people, does it really matter why they kill them? I mean, it should be, I think, a little more blind, right? If you're a murderer, you get charged for murdering, not because you murdered in this way, or you murdered, you know, and you laughed about it. or, And also, when the, when the victim's family support it, I don't know why that should be brought into the, into the, into the deliberation either, because it, it, it doesn't really matter. I understand why they want to have a say, right? But they're obviously biased, you know? Most people who are victims, you know, might, well, not most, but many, you could see, would feel revengeful and would want the person who killed their loved one to be executed or somehow pay an ultimate price. But, you know, in, in a country where we don't have clear clear guidance on whether to use the death penalty or not, um, I don't think that should be brought into the, into the, into the deliberation. And um, it just skews the outcome. If you allow people to, you know, these victim um, statements that can happen during uh, court or during sentencing, Sentencing, you know, they, they go and they confront the person who did it and they say why it's been so horrible. But I mean, really, um, I don't think most of the people who are on trial for murder care one way or another what, what, what those people feel, right? But um, it's not likely that they care. Um, so, but should that give them more of a sentence because they're callous. You know, this is where the, um, the emotional things come in, and I don't think they should be permitted. But, um, you know, I guess you can understand why they're part of the system. I just think that somehow it should, they should be separate, separate issues. Um, so changes to department guidance also specify mental illness can count against approving death sentences, which is a departure from Trump-era guidance. At least two, two inmates executed under Trump had severe mental illnesses. Okay, so that in itself should alarm everybody. Um, 
you know, um, there's a difference between having a severe mental illness and, and determining whether one is, one is able to take responsibility for a crime, right, if they're competent, you know. But, um, you know, I, I think anybody, it seems to me, who has a severe mental illness should be, should be um, exempted from any kind of death penalty just, just to make sure that you, there's not a miscarriage of justice. I mean, if you're going to err one way or the other, I think it's go the conservative route. The guidance was central to the Crucius decision with department attorneys accepting he had schizoaffective disorder. So schizoaffective disorder is kind of a um, combination of being, you know, uh, I mean, roughly speaking, it's like having schizophrenia and, a, and, a, and a, like a major depression or bipolar um, all rolled into one, which is really kind of the, one of the most difficult set of symptoms a person can have, right? Because you have so many deficits that, uh, um, you know, it, 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 you, you, sh you should not be surprised if someone with that diagnosis would, would, would end up getting into some kind of trouble um, based on their mental illness, and uh, oftentimes it, it, it you know, I, it, would, it would be a bit of a stretch to hold them responsible, you know, and consider them competent. I mean, that's not to say everybody with schizoaffective disorders that way, because actually most people with, with um, this diagnosis are victims of crime, not perpetrators. So there's another myth kind of built into the story about, you know, as there often is about um, shootings, mass shootings, that somehow these people are, are um, the people who carry them out are, generally speaking, mentally ill. And I guess you could make an argument that if you're murdering people, that you're by definition mentally ill. But, um, you know, men mental illness does not um, in any way um, result in violent behavior. In fact, as I said, it's often the opposite. People who have severe mental um, illnesses are are very very likely to be um, uh, hurt by other people, including by people in, in the system who are supposed to be helping them. In April court filings explaining its Bowers decision, the department noticed most victims' families wanted Bowers to die if convicted. Okay, that I you know just because the victims want that, I don't think means that it should just be a fait, fait accompli. The department also sought its own mental evaluation of Bowers before the final decision on authorization. The defense refused, saying prosecutors wouldn't assure them Bowers' exam statements would not be used at trial. Government mental health experts were given access to Bowers just before trial. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting. So even just having an examination could jeopardize his legal standing. But, um, um, you know... I just think there's way too much conflation in all of this. I mean, these things have to be, all the threads have to be very carefully um, un untwined, if that's a word, and uh, seen in, in, in separate ways. Responding to criticism, the department also denied its decision was inconsistent with those concerning Crucius and others, saying Bauer's shooting stood apart because older victims were uniquely vulnerable and the crime occurred in a house of worship. Okay, so what does that have to do with anything? Right, it's if you if you commit a, a a crime in a house of worship, that's worse than committing a crime in a stadium or a mall. Or I mean, that's a bias, right? Um, crimes aren't worse because they're they're perpetrated against religious people, are they? I hope not. I mean, that that, that would have a, a almost like a two tier justice system effect. I don't think we want that. And older victims, it's the same thing. I mean, I don't understand why if they're older. You know, you can make an argument. I mean, if you really want to be twisted, you could say it's 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 actually, it's it's actually something that should should not count against them. You know, it's the younger the people who get killed when they're younger, they've lost their entire lives, right? That that would be more consequential and make more sense. But in either case, I would reject that. Um, it shouldn't really come into the equation. What else is known about the special division? Okay, a 2016 gender discrimination lawsuit from a former section employee against his Justice Department offered further insight into the secretive capital case section. Why is it secretive? During litigation of the suit, which was later dismissed, ex-staffers accused the section of being disorganized, 
and one accused a section attorney of withholding interview notes in Andrew Rogers' case. Okay, so you can't be, you know, I mean, obviously in discovery in a, in a, in a court case, you can't, there, should, there are penalties for not disclosing what you know, you know, regardless of what side you're on and if it's good for you or not good for you in terms of the theory of the case. While in federal prison, Roger killed a fellow prisoner. Rogers killed a fellow prisoner in 2013 in a bid to get executed and avoid the drudgery of life behind bars. He told homicide investigators, if I get the death penalty, I'll take it with a smile. Obama's Justice Department authorized the death penalty for him. Okay, so so if you say, give me the death penalty, that makes it more likely that you can have the death penalty? I mean, that's playing into this guy's, uh, you know, pathology. So, I mean, this is just insane. Foster, representing Rogers in a 2018 bid to vacate the authorization, cited the allegations made in the gender discrimination suit. She contended the withheld notes from interviews with the prison psychologist and others would have proved Rogers' mental illness. So what, what happened with this prison psychologist, right? Did they just uh, say, oh, I guess I'll just sit on this. Whatever you say, boss, that's a violation of ethics. Just days before 2019 hearing in the 2019 hearing in Rogers' case to examine claims of section misconduct deriving from the discrimination suit, the department rescinded the death sentence authorization. Okay, so, you know, as soon as they get into a little bit of water, they uh, hot water, they back off. So that tells you something, right? I mean, why would they do that if they really thought on the merits things were correct, okay? Foster said it did so to avoid a scheduled hearing that could have proven the allegations and that the defense was obliged to end the case by letting Rogers plead guilty and receive a life sentence. 2020 department filing said an Office of Professional Responsibility Investigation found no wrongdoing by the section attorney in Rogers' case. The attorney still works in the section. Great. Department never publicly released an OPR report on that investigation. So that's the murky part of it, right? How come we don't know these things? In November 2020, on a November 20, 21, 2022 OPR letter to Foster obtained by the AP says a 114-page report addressed, among other things, whether department attorneys conducted a biased investigation that unduly influenced the Attorney General to authorize the death penalty for Rogers. Okay. Wow. The letter says the report concluded there was no professional misconduct on the grounds the defense ultimately received helpful evidence before Rogers pleaded guilty, even if it was received late. Okay, so again, a rationalization. It, it worked out in the end. And because of that, we're, we don't have to worry about what happened. Well, that's not how it works, right? It's just like I said the other day. If there's a conspiracy, right, and the conspiracy never happens. In other words, let's say for the sake of argument, someone plans to murder somebody, right? And it just doesn't happen for whatever reason. You're still culpable for the conspiracy, right? That's a crime in itself. And so just because it worked out, you know, uh, in a way that uh, was, was um, you know, beneficial for the good guys and not beneficial for the bad guys, to put it, you know, kind of simply, um, does not excuse it, right? So again, the logic is just so wrong. Um, changes can happen without Biden. Death penalty foes say Biden's department should be judged by the standard Biden set himself and should oppose all execution, executions, including Bowers. But blame for failures to make good on Biden's pledge to end the federal death penalty should be directed up the chain, the command chain, uh, Dunham said. So that's, uh, I don't know, someone just commenting on it. If Joe Biden doesn't want the federal death penalty or stuck with one and wants to make it fairer, then he and the Justice Department, political appointees, need to take steps to bring that about. Well, here, here, I agree with that. So, you know, this is why the death penalty is problematic in the first place, because once you try to, it's so controversial in so many ways and causes so many um, so many issues as a result of it, uh, you, you should just ban it on that case alone because all everything that falls out from it um, is, is very problematic. So, and even if you tighten it up and were able to do it more consistently, there's still still aspects of it that that's not going to make any difference. It's still not going to be very, um, it's not going to be uh, doled out in a, in a way that makes sense. Um, and I think people are missing the point, right? Putting someone, whether you put someone to death or not, does not really change anything in reality. Um, 
so why do it? So that's that article. That was an interesting article to see. And then the last one is a more general article um, related to how the people view the government. So this is in today's edition of the AP News. You can go on the site today and read it. It's, the headline is, Americans are widely pessimistic about democracy in the United States. An AP NORC poll finds. So the AP and this other organization polled the American people. And this is the conclusion. Only one in 10 U.S. adults give high ratings to the way democracy is working in the United States or how well it represents the interests of most Americans, according to a new poll. Okay, that's very sad when one in 10 people think things are running fine. Um, or I guess you're giving high ratings, so that's a little bit of a higher standard. But anyway, majorities of adults say U.S. laws and policies do a poor job of representing what most Americans want on issues ranging from the economy and government spending to gun policy, immigration, and abortion. Poll shows 53% say Congress is doing a bad job of upholding democratic values compared with just 16% who say it's doing a good job. Well, we all know that the Congress has been in the, in the doldrums for a long time. We know that the executive branch has been presidents are not held in high esteem. And, and, and recently, we know that the Supreme Court, only about 18% of people feel like they do a decent job. So it's not surprising to see this poll. Um, the findings illustrate widespread political alienation as a polarized country limps out of the pandemic and into a recovery haunted by inflation and fears of recession. Well, I don't know that that's the case. That's a, that's a conclusion that this person is coming to who wrote the article. But um, that's, that's quite a, uh, an extrapolation from those figures to, you know, trying to explain the figures, right? Um, you know, again, I, I don't know that it's really a, a, an issue of polarization as much as it is um, that um, it's, a, it's an elite, <coughs> it's an elite versus the rest of us um, um, problem. So um, characterizing it that way, I, I think it's a little bit out of step with the, the actual reality. But this seems to be the um, conventional wisdom, and I think it's wrong. Um, again, they bring up the pandemic. You know, maybe that's why inflation, recession, I mean, all these things that happened before, but none of the polling, the, the dire polling numbers um, were reflective of that. So I don't see how you can make that conclusion. Again, a very, you know, uh, a statement that just lacks um, rigorous um, analysis, I think. Findings illustrate, well, okay, I read that already. Um, What's next? Overall, about half the country, 49%, say democracy is not working well in the United States. Uh, certainly is not, compared with 10% who say it's working very or extremely well, and 40% only somewhat well. So not working and somewhat well is, accounts for 90%, right? About half also say each of the political parties is doing a bad job of upholding democracy. So, you know, from my point of view, I think the Republicans are much more... Um, uh, responsible for the, this dysfunction, but uh, I, that wouldn't necessarily imply that the Democrats aren't, because again, you know, it's not really a polar thing. Um, both of the parties are doing poorly, and they they are more in the uh, pocket of the special interests and the elite, the one one percenters, than they are in in the, for the public. And when a, when a country, it, you know. The whole idea of the United States, right? The um, Declaration of the uh, of Independence and, and and the Constitution. Of course, the, the folks who wrote that must be just rolling in their graves because to see what has happened, you know, between when they wrote it and what's happening now. I mean, the idea that the government is, you know, for the people, by the people, of the people, whatever the quote is, is is so far off the mark at this point that. Um, they they must it must it must just kill them. Um, I don't think either of them is doing either of them meaning the parties is doing a good job just because of the state of the economy. Inflation is killing us. This is somebody uh, just a person um, on the street right now. I'm making as much as I ever have, and I'm struggling as much as I ever have. So yeah, 
self-described moderate Republican. This person has seen the United States falling short of its democratic promise ever since learning in high school that the Electoral College allows someone to become president while not winning the majority of national votes. Well, I think that's a good point. But he's especially disappointed with Congress now, seeing its obsessions as not reflective of the people's will. They're fighting over something, and it has nothing to do with the economy. Well, I mean, I understand what he's trying to say. Hunter Biden, what does that have to do with us? Well, I wouldn't just dismiss that, um, especially if you're a Republican. <laughs> you, you wouldn't be likely to, but I think anybody should be concerned about him um, for, for many different reasons. One of them, the latest revelation, is that, you know, you, 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 I, was, I was talking about his the, the corruption of being able to make so much money per month as a consultant without any background in that subject matter just because you happen to be, you know, the son of a notable uh, United States politician. But um, that should be a red flag. But uh, the recent revelation is that um, he had a handgun, right, uh, in his possession. And um, when you have a handgun in your possession uh, illegally, and you have prior convictions, that's a serious crime in most places. And there is an article in the AP uh, News not too long about comparing his case in the justice system with some other guy, some unknown person, right, who had a similar conviction on possession of a gun. That person went to jail for 25 years. Hunter Biden got probation, right? So even in that just that one examination of what's going on with him, there's a major injustice there. Now, you could say it has nothing to do with Hunter Biden himself, but it does have to do with privilege, right, and why things are not working, because there's a two-tier justice system. There's justice for, you know, the one percenters, and then there's justice for the rest of us. That's a horrible place to be, and I think um, that is important. But nonetheless, I take, I take what he's saying. You know, I understand where he's coming from. The poll shows 53% of Americans say views of people like you are not represented well represented well by the government, with 35% saying they are represented somewhat well and 12% very or extremely well. About 6 in 10 Republicans and independents feel like the government is not representing people like them, compared with about 4 in 10 Democrats, right? So then there's a researcher who chimes in here. Um, she sees troubling signs all around her. A Democrat, she recently moved to a conservative area outside the liberal campus hub of Ann Arbor and worried that conspiracy theorists who believe former President Donald Trump's lies that he won the 2020 election would show up at, as poll watchers. Her Republican family members no longer identify with the party and are limiting their political engagement. Well, good for them. I mean, when you have absolute chaos and insanity at the, at the, at the top of our you know, as president, um, I think that's not a bad decision. Um, what else? Now she keeps talking about, you know, personal things, but uh, I think we're just going to skip over that. Um, it's a little bit off point. Okay, but they're talking about, you know, that their personal experiences that don't add up to them is, is leading to alienation alienation from the political system. Yeah, of course. I mean, when you feel like, you know, nothing you do has any bearing on uh, the state of the political world, then yeah, you, you're probably likely to, 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 you know, withdraw from participation. Yeah. When you have a base that's a minority of what general Americans think, but they're the loudest voices in the room, that's who politicians listen to. Well, that's kind of Interesting, because why would they do that? You, you want to appeal to the majority of people if you want to get elected and have the power to change things. But, uh, yeah, this, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease theory, I guess. Polarization has trans... Again, we're getting this polarization. I think it's kind of off point in a way. But, um, yeah. So, the poll shows that the vast majority of Americans, 71%, think that think what most Americans want should be highly important when laws and policies are made, but only 48% think that that's actually true in practice. Well, again, the disconnection, right, between the people and the people who are representing them. So there's a couple of bar graphs here. I'll just skip over that. Um, and views are even more negative when it comes to specific issues. About two-thirds of adults say policies on immigration, government spending, abortion policy, and gun policy are not representative of most of what most American... Americans want, yeah. 
and nearly that many say the same about the economy as well as gender identity and LGBTQ plus issues. So, I mean, just across the board, right? They're, they're just, uh, the, the, the disapproval is, is so high. I mean, but how do you take that and change things? I don't know. We have a very corrupt system at the moment. Um, this two-party system, I really think, has to go. And uh, campaign finance, but with the, you know, with the recent decisions of the Supreme Court, I think um, where the pendulum is still swinging in the in the wrong direction. Um, I think there's going to have to be something, or rather, a, a crisis of monumental proportion for things to change. Now, you'd say climate change might unite people, but you know, we already know that that's a divisive kind of thing. You know, a lot of people don't even believe it's true, but it may force people to be cooperative, or it might just make it even worse, where people uh, just start, you know, fighting over everything. Yeah, and then they talk about healthcare and environment, it's, it's also not reflected well. Um, then they have some, you know, man on the street kind of interviews. Um, I'll just skip over that, because that's anecdotal, really. Uh, this person sees those bad dynamics as lingering after the Trump's presidency, so they were talking about the kind of things that he was up to. Well, I always knew there was racism, but now they're emboldened enough to go around and shoot people because of the color of their skin. Well, yeah, that's. I think if the president is telling you it's okay to attack his enemies, and those people happen to be people of color or any other minority, then, yeah, you're going to see it. You, you, you have seen statistically arise in that kind of... It's undeniable in the statistics. Um, you know, you know, you don't have to even make an argument. You just look at the statistics and see what's going right and what's going wrong. Um, I mean, you do have to make a connection to the, to the, to, to what's causing it, but I think it's pretty obvious when you, when you demonize a certain group of people that, you know, the, some people are going to, um, take that as a rallying cry. Yeah. Seems like this always happens in the U.S. and we always prevail. Recalling how American polit politicians sympathetic to Nazi Germany gained prominence before World War II. I just hope we prevail this time. Well, that's a good point. And things are going really poorly. And, I mean, you just hope at some point people get upset enough that they do something about it. But, unfortunately, what happens in that case is there's a lot of violence to correct, correct these things. It would be so much better if we were a little bit wiser and realized that if we are preemptive about it, and try and fix the problems before they become, you know, major controversies and people have to duke it on the streets over it. I mean, I, I think most people would want to avoid that. Um, you know, who wants to, you know, spend their time fighting? I mean, if you have to fight, I guess it's one thing. You know, if someone invades your country and you're not much of a person to take up arms, well, you know, at a certain point you're going to be forced to because, you know, the closer it gets to you, uh, the more relevant it's going to become to you. And if you just want to fall over and die, that's one thing. But, you know, most people will probably try to uh, defend themselves. But um, I don't think people want to do that, right? Who wants to be in a situation where they have to, you know, basically fight for their lives? I, I certainly don't. Um, I'd rather work it out in the system. But uh, that would be, I guess, an optimistic thought because many times that doesn't happen. Anyway, those were some of the things I felt like I had to circle back on. I saw it in the AP site, and um, since they did have some relevancy, um, I thought I'd go in it. And, and as you see, again, when you read these articles, you have to read them very carefully and um, make sure that you see these things clearly in your head because there's a lot of assumptions and a lot of you know, um, conclusions that are made that are rather iffy. Um, and what I'm trying to do here is try to have some clarity in terms of what the reality is versus what people want the reality to be versus how it's portrayed in the news and uh, versus how people manipulate things for political purposes, how they manipulate things for emotional payoff. I mean, you know, there are just so many biases out there that can play into um, causing um, individuals and systems to make the wrong decisions based on things that are almost irrelevant to the, uh, to the uh, subject at hand. So anyway, um, yeah, I think this is the way to look at it. Look at it skeptically, look at it like a scientist would. You know, look at it with how, hopefully um, by suppressing your own biases, whether it's a political um, 
you know, a, a political point of view or, you know, something that's conscious or unconscious or subconscious. I mean, you know, the unconscious you can't really do much about, I suppose. But um, <laughs> uh, you can use the other conscious parts to, you know, mitigate anything that's problematic. But, um, yeah, I think that's going to be it, though, for me. It is uh, Saturday, July 15th, 2023, and uh, that's it for the By Jove Show. I hope to see you in a couple of, couple of days again, and, you know, have a good rest of the weekend. Take care.